Hello and welcome back to the Middling Along podcast. I'm your host, Emma Thomas, and our guest this time is Fiona Clark. Fiona is an Australian journalist with two twin passions, health and politics. She previously worked for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and was a correspondent in the Soviet Union at the time it collapsed. She returned to Australia and worked as a reporter and then producer on the equivalent of Newsnight before leaving the ABC to move to medical publishing in the early 2000s. She moved with her family back to Russia for what was supposed to be a year, but ended up being 10 or so, and then moved to London, where she set up Harley Street Emporium with the aim of delivering evidence-based information about skincare to women, which quickly evolved into menopausal health. And for the last five years, she's carried out thousands of interviews with menopause experts and many amazing women talking about their experiences. More recently, she's launched the Menopause Research and Education Fund, and that's why I asked her to come and chat to me today to tell us more about why such a charity is needed and what their plans are for the future. Welcome to the podcast, Fiona. Thank you very much. That's quite a colourful uh, bio, CV, what, <laughs> whichever way you, uh, you slice and dice it. Have you, uh, do you get back to Australia often or are you? No, I haven't been back actually for, it's probably coming up for 10 years for the last time that, um, that I went back. And um, that was when I ran into Dr Ginny Mansberg who said, I've launched this amazing range of evidence-based skincare, do you want to you know, do you want to try it? And I tried it. And I've, I had to go back to be fingerprinted for a visa for the UK. And so I had this whole great big business plan that I was going to do X business for this. And I tried her skincare products. And um, and I thought, my God, these are actually really good. They're evidence-based and they're great. I'm, I'm going to throw my business plan out the window and I'm going to bring these to the UK. So that didn't work. But what I noticed when I was um, doing the research for pulling pulling her stuff together and bringing it in, was that everything you read in a magazine about um, skincare is advertorial. It's not Mm. editorial, it's advertorial. It's there to sell you something and it's so lacking in evidence base that I thought this is um this is not good enough we need to do something about that so I set up Harley Street Emporium as you say with the aim of giving people evidence-based information and it, it quickly evolved because menopause is really my passion I think <laughs> I just, so I just sort of fell into that <laughs> well we've certainly got that in common so for anyone that hasn't heard yet about the Menopause Research and Education Fund. It's not a charity yet, but you're well on the way to becoming one. What on earth made you decide to set up a charity? And and it's in conjunction with, with two other people. Can you talk to us about who they are and why they're so important? Absolutely. The process of becoming a charity is long and arduous. You have to prove to the Charities Commission that you are acting charitably, that you have an annual income of at least Mm £5,000. So to do that, you've got to raise the money and you've got to start acting charitably, which is what we're doing. You also have to have trustees. So over the last five years, with all of the, um, literally, there have been thousands of interviews that I've been doing, I've become sort of, I guess, close in some ways to various people. And you have to have trustees on your on your board. And the people who I chose as trustees to um, to help me with this process are Diane Danzabrink, who's one of the original campaigners um, for getting menopause onto the agenda. And she it was her her set of mandates, I guess, really that got um, the menopause onto the the curriculum in schools. Yeah. Um, has succeeded in getting 
medical students being educated in menopause from next year onwards um, and she's still pushing for, for better education for everybody you know compulsory education for GPS mm-hmm. um, and better workplace situations so lovely Diane agreed to um, to help me with this as did Vikram Talalika now Vikram is a gynecologist and passionate advocate for women's health really from you know, from fertility issues right through to, to menopause very evidence-based and is is just um, a fantastically trustworthy um, individual. So he too agreed to back us with this because literally every time I do an interview with somebody, we get to that point where I say, and what do we know about the evidence for this? And what do we know about, you know, the long-term safety of that? And what do we know about this? And the answer is always the same sort of, well, we don't really because, you know, we don't have Yeah, because it's only 50% of the population that goes through it. So why would we bother? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I just thought, God, this is, is this becoming a, a broken record almost. I thought, well, if nobody else is going to do this, then um, then I will because it just seems that it's um, it is you know an area that is crying out for research for everything from from the supplements all the way through to the HRT and other treatments. There needs to be so much more research done. We know certain aspects of it, like you know, the HRT will help with hot flushes and vasomotor mm-hmm. symptoms, but we don't really know what the the long term effects if if you're on it for twenty or thirty years because. We don't have the data. So we need to start looking at these sorts of things. We also, you know, there are so many questions as well about, you know, is HRT preventative for dementia or is it not? Um, Just so many questions that we need to have looked at. And there are people who are doing research, but in the end, a lot of it is not independent. And I think that um, that is the a really important factor that you have um, an independent body that can fund research. And Governments do do that. You can apply for government grants to get funding for things, but you know there's a limited a limited resource there, as everything always is. And I don't think that women's health often comes at the top of that um, at their agenda. No, it's a it's a very small percentage, isn't it, of, of sort of total 5, research funding. Two point five percent of um, health budget is spent on on women's health research, which is not a lot. Yeah. So uh, you you surveyed as part of your sort of um, launch for for the organisation. You you sort of put a survey out there asking uh, people, women in particular, what uh, sort of topics they would like to see researched, um, and and what what were the ones that came out on top. Well, interesting actually. You, some of them you won't be surprised about. You will have heard of, heard of a lot of these. <laughs> Migraines, headaches, that mm. was one that was um, that a lot of people asked about. Um, HRT post-cancer, that was another one that people really wanted information on. Um, mental health. Um, joint pain, that was an interesting one because, you know, what, what helps with joint pain? Stress management and those kinds of things. What can, what's the impact of stress on, on menopause? That was an interesting one. Long-term effects of HRT testosterone does it does it mm. not <laughs> definitely <laughs> very uh, very much in the news re- yes, over recent exactly. months for sure yeah. the one that um that i find really interesting mainly because i'm going through this this neutrogestin hell myself at the moment is um you know what is the correct dose of, of eutrogestin that should that we should be having um, you know to stop unexplained bleeding those right. kinds of things so they're really diverse they're really some of them are really quite specific and focused and some of them were sort of much more sort of big picture but generally a lot of a lot of interest in a lot of areas yeah it's interesting what you were saying there about about the eutrogestin because obviously 
you know, for a lot of people starting on HRT, whoever, whichever healthcare professional they'll see will will quite often recommend that they sort of start on a low dose and maybe build up. But we know that people absorb their HRT differently if they've got it transdermally or they, you know, that they'll react differently to different um, ways of delivering it. And really, we know so little, don't we, about kind of about those kind of interactions uh, and, and sort of there's no real kind of personalized care that we can do in that way because it is just very much, well, let's try it and see and kind of fiddle upwards, downwards with with different kind of dosages and and try and find that that sweet spot. So hopefully that's also something that that research can look at in the future so that we can be a bit more precise about these things yeah exactly and especially you know with the you know people who are on very high doses of estrogen we um Vikram was telling me the other day they are seeing a very significantly sharp rise of people coming in Mm. who are having investigations for unexplained bleeding and so it's really important that we (laughs) that we know how to how how that package goes together I guess when we're trying to get that balance so you're protecting the endometrium but still keeping your your symptoms under control. In terms of where you would like the organisation to to kind of go over the next few years what are your plans I mean you're you're kind of in a, a fundraising stage at the moment. That's a very big question of course I have giant ideas in my head um, <laughs> I am hoping that, that this will evolve into the preeminent um, independent menopause research charity um, once we sort of get things going but it is um it is going to be a very very long haul and I understand you know it's it's if you're a charity that you know raises money for clean water in Africa or for you know vaccines for for you know curing a disease or you know curing cancer you've got a very big statement out there but menopause is is very um there's no there is no cure. There is no disease, if you know what I mean. It's one of those sorts of things where you just kind of think, okay, there's an economic cost to it. There's a personal cost to it. There are relationship costs to it. There are health consequences down the road. And, you know, with an ageing population, we're going to be living an awful mm. lot longer as postmenopausal women, and our health is going to be affected. So there are there are lots of avenues that need to be looked at, but it's in if you're sort of giving it the hard sell of sort of, you know, your two pounds is going to buy you know, clean water and vaccines for children for the next six months. This is a harder sell. I it's think. not quite as emotive. But... <laughs> I'm not going to be curing cancer. Or I'm not going to be doing all of those sorts of things. But hopefully we can, the aim is to have, you know, a really good, a good pot of money. So when people come and they and they say, I want to do research on X, we'll apply the ethical, um, you know, go through like a, like a mm-hmm. ethical council would of looking at, you know, is this a good research um, thing to, to fund? And, over time, we will develop a really good pool of independent research. So that's nice. And the other thing that we, we were thinking of doing as well, once we get um, a decent pool of money, is saying, okay, this is a question that we want answered. Like, say, the progesterone one and unexplained bleeding. We will get, we'll pay a, a, a PhD student to go through the data in these data banks or and and pull together some research on that, so we get a much better picture of who was on what dose, when they had the bleeding, and why. So we know that there's, you know, there's a, a cause and effect there that we can actually look at so you can work out what's actually happening. So we're hoping that we will we'll work both ways, that people will come to us and say, we want funding for this research, and that we'll work the other way as well with saying, okay, we want to fund X, so we've got the answers as well. Yeah, because quite often, though, uh, you know, if we pick out something like sort of Alzheimer's, for example, there are a lot of different studies out there looking, which are 
showing potentially quite uh, opposing results in terms of whether it's protective or not protective. So presumably if you've got somebody who could go and cross, look across all of the different studies and kind of draw out, as you said, the the sort of the, the data from those different data sets and do a meta-analysis, then maybe we end up with with some kind of new information that way as well. Yeah, it's a difficult one too because, you know, you're comparing different types of, of mm. hormones that have been used. Some studies are observational. Some, some have actually been um, looking at people... In, in real time some of them they're all different so you're often comparing an orange with a with an apple which does sort of give those conflicting results sometimes which is um difficult especially when you're looking at the older forms of hrt and people who were you know given it later in life rather than you know when they should have started in their sort of you know perimenopause sort of menopause sort of time so you're looking at very different things and um that's sometimes where the i think the conflicting information comes out yeah. And, and would you see that the MREF would have a role as well in, in sort of trying to um, kind of explain to the general population when when these kind of emotive studies come out and the media is suddenly all over it and sort of helping us to to actually understand more deeply that, than sort of tabloid headlines will uh, necessarily give us really giving people the context and, and as you say, the evidence base drilling down into what's what's actually going on behind the headlines. Yeah, absolutely, and especially getting that across to the medical professionals. So the other, there are a couple of missions for the for the charity, and one is is the research. The other is making sure that all health professionals get access to evidence based education, um, and the third is that all people who go through menopause who need evidence based information have access to it at all. So, um, so yes, we will definitely be doing a lot of that explaining of what x means i do a lot of that now already on mm-hmm. Hunter's Emporium. you know when something comes out i spend an awful lot of time going through and talking to people about what did this study mean how come it's different from that one what can we draw from from it um so yes that will be a a, a very big mainstay of what it is that we actually do making sure that things are explained to people so they've got the right kind of information and they can make informed decisions about their own health yeah, and that, that's sort of both the the blessing and the curse of social media, isn't it? We can we can get all kinds of information <laughs> and reaction and uh, statements of fact, <laughs> in inverted commas, uh, on there. But but actually having you know organisations like this that are sort of trustworthy and that people know are kind of unbiased, independent, uh, evidence based, and factual so important and I think it's difficult too when you're still working in an area where you know evidence constantly changes too Mm. and so that's the um the other sort of evolving thing like the the North American Menopause Society put out their uh position statement on non-hormonal therapies um a week or so ago what a week or so ago what works what doesn't and you know in in the eight years since they did it last time a lot changed so things moved moved from the recommended to the not recommended list or vice versa and um and there were a lot of surprises in it actually with um things that people didn't expect things that we've been told that that would help us such as um you know exercise mindfulness Mm -hmm. those kinds of things they were put in the not recommended list yoga that made a lot of people very unhappy um (laughs) supplements that went into the not recommended not not a single supplement was um this was specifically for the vasomotor symptoms for the vasomotor um treatments so um but you know that, that the things about you know exercise and dietary modification and things like that, avoiding triggers. That was one that you know we were always told avoid triggers. 
that went into the not recommended list. Mm-hmm. So over time, things do change. And I think that confuses people. And, you know, we, we like black and white. And when things change, that often makes people, I don't know, I think it makes people feel uncomfortable. I think they lose a bit of trust somehow because, um, you know, we like a black and white answer, but sometimes it isn't that way. I mean, I guess that would be a, a one other thing that's really important for us to be able to get across is, you know, not to fear change when evidence moves, um, you know, to be happy. Somebody, mm. Somebody's looked at something and, they, and they've learned something. So let's move with it. I think part of the problem is just that sheer volume of information as, you know, if, if you're not a specialist, just kind of you're constantly bombarded with what what can sometimes be kind of conflicting viewpoints so as you say you know uh, trying to kind of keep keep tabs on (laughs) what what is the most up-to-date and the most rigorous uh you know and and kind of evidence-based research can can be quite tricky so I think yeah. yeah, and evaluating the quality of that information because you said they're rigorous studies. That's, you know, how do you define what is good evidence? Well, there are levels. So they have a levels of, you know, for one to five rating them. But, you know, unless you really sort of looked into that, you know, you'll, you'll see a study that says, you know, 12 women who took pumpkin seeds solved mm. their bladder issues. And then, you know, a supplement will appear and, and, and they'll say, we've got clinical studies to prove this. Um, but, you know, in the end, what's the quality of those? It's... It, if it's if it's very small, if it's done by the company that that is is making the product, if it's if it's funded by a product the product manufacturer, there are so many things that you've got to look into when you're looking at how was this, how was the study even structured? Did it go for long enough? Um, mm. So many things that go into it. That's it's a big job to sift through all of that. You definitely need to to be kind of curious and. Um carefully carefully cynical perhaps in terms of of the claims that that are made by by some companies out there i mean in terms of if people want to to support the mref are there a couple of different ways that people can get involved beyond sort of individual donations i think you're you're also looking for sort of companies to get involved and sponsor the organization not sponsor it but to you know to be kind of big supporters um, there are many ways that people can get involved and what we would really like, well, yes, obviously donations, if you want to make a donation, you can go to the mref.uk website. Um, there are multiple buttons on there screaming at you <laughs> donate. Um, there we also have a GoFundMe page so people can go there. Um, if people want to run an event or host an event themselves and raise money and donate it, that would be absolutely fantastic. I need help. I'm by myself doing this pretty, pretty much. If anybody's got any skills that they'd like to um to donate to me that would be a really lovely thing uh what else oh we're thinking of um we're going to run auctions on a regular basis so if people have goods or services that they'd like to donate that we can um we can auction off once i've worked out how to legally do it um (laughs) that would be a lovely thing and i'm open to suggestion and yes once we've got that charity status uh in place um it would be absolutely fantastic if people have companies or if they work in in large workplaces if if we could become your your company charity that would be a really nice thing for the year i understand a lot of companies do that kind of thing where they have a a chosen charity for the year and and do stuff in the workplace and and donate money for it that would be Mm. a beautiful thing i'm happy for sport in any way shape or form really well they're definitely we're definitely seeing a rise in in companies going for the sort of menopause friendly accreditation and that kind of thing so so you would hope that that if they're they're putting um you know resource behind that kind of thing that that they would also be interested in in supporting the charity yeah yep you would really hope so that would be a good thing because it's um a policy is a nice thing but actually you know to have 
you know, come to the site, get your resources, do do whatever you need in that sort of respect. You know, we're we're happy to make things a sort of a, a to help where we can as well, not just not just take. We're happy to give. So um, and so, yeah. Hopefully, sort of over the next couple of years, you'll you'll be able to expand and and sort of maybe take on a a, a bigger team of people once you you'll be able to access more funding. Yes, I hope so. That would be a very good thing. I mean, I know I know you know money is tight at the moment, but um, as you know, Diane was saying a while a while back, you know, even if you've got one pound, if you've signed her, that petition, if everybody who signed her her make menopause mm. matter petition donated one pound, we'd have two hundred thousand pounds almost um, now. So you know, and one pound isn't a huge amount. So hopefully, people can can do that. Just pledge a pound. We'll be happy. <laughs> There you go, uh, dear listeners. Uh, uh, so I, I will put in the show notes uh, a link to the website, the MREF. I hope you're you're able to support it too. I think you know it, it, it is desperately needed independent research. I'm looking forward to to seeing where this goes. And um, I, I know you've just got so much energy that you're putting behind it, Fiona. I know it it, it will succeed. I hope so. I'm, I'm not a big fan of failure, but then you know, <laughs> as they say, actually, failure is not a failure. Just look at it as a learning curve. But you know, I hope we won't go there. I I know, you know, people get very up, you know, I was reading something yesterday about menopause and a woman saying I'm not a feminist and I don't want to be put in the same bandwagon as as people who have, you know, mental health issues when they go through menopause. I'm fine, so why do I have to have this, you know, this be labelled with the Mm. same thing? And I kind of was thinking, I know it's very, it's, it's, it can be a divisive topic, but in the end, we're talking about women's health. We're talking about long-term health here. It's not just a matter of, you know, getting through menopause um, mm. and dealing with the symptoms then. It goes beyond that. You know, your vasomotor symptoms today, if they're not well controlled, can really make a big difference to your risk for dementia. And we need to know who then are, are the people who are really at risk. We need to be able to target them early so we can we can make sure that their, um, their risks for what's going to happen to them 30, 40 years down the line is um, they're in a better shape when they get to the other end of the line, really. So these are the sorts of things that matter. Yeah, it, it's so much more than that sort of kind of acute period of time, isn't it, where people yeah. might be um, having severe symptoms? Because as you say, I think what we're so we just stat the other day about one in six of us will be living to to a hundred or beyond. So yeah, obviously, if we're we're living such big chunks of our lives without those hormones, we need to know what uh, what what that actually means, what are the implications, and and Exactly, and I think what was the um the, the something came out the other day that by twenty forty the burden of disease would about uh, I think it's about thirty percent higher than what it is now because we're we're living longer and the cost to the economy of that is huge. So mm. really, we need to make sure that we're living as healthily as we can for as long as we possibly can, and we need to know what all the tools that we need for that. Well, Fiona, thanks so much for coming on talking to us about the Menopause Research and Education Fund. Uh, as I say, I'll pop a link into the show notes so everyone can find out a bit more about it. That would be lovely and you know, get in touch, ask any questions you like, tell me what you want to, to see researched. Thank you, Fiona. Thank you, take care. You've been listening to the Middling Along podcast. Do remember to subscribe to be notified when our next episode is live. And why not visit the blog at www.middlingalong.com to sign up to my newsletter as well. I do hope you enjoyed listening today. If you did, I'd be really grateful if you would consider leaving a short review as that helps people find the podcast and helps get it noticed. Hope you can join us next time. Goodbye for now.